Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 4.6 billion. The Earth forms. Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million. 90% of species die. Cretaceous tertiary. 65 million. Meteor kills the dinosaurs. 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. 20,000. Agricultural 250. Industrial revolution. We Great acceleration. The Anthropocene. Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we feature stories and conversations about planetary change. I'm Miles Traer. At the heart of the Anthropocene is an uncomfortable proposition. Collectively, we humans are a geological force shaping the Earth. The implication is that we're unique. So this leads us to ask questions about just how different, or similar, we are to all other forms of life on Earth. Today on the show, we're going to look at some of the forces that have shaped us and those that continue to shape us. In our first piece, student producer Dylan Anslow asks a seemingly simple question. What does the future of human evolution look like? Here's Dylan. You know that famous evolution poster, The March of Progress? Fifteen primates on parade, from a teeny gleeful-looking ape to a hunched, hairy, early human, and finally modern man about to check his watch on his way to work. Lately, I've been wondering, what's next? After Homo sapiens sapiens, after I think, therefore I am, after whatever comes after the iPhone, assuming we're still around, what will we look like? How will we act? Or maybe it's better to ask, how is evolution acting on us already? Matan Shalomi is a professor of entomology at National Taiwan University. He studies insects, but he's also super interested in human evolution, and he's written a ton about how humans might change in the near future. All you need for evolution is a change in the frequency of a gene or a trait. It doesn't need to be a good trait or a helpful trait. It doesn't need to have any benefit or cost. It just needs to spread, and the frequency of it has to change. Evolution is all about mutations in our genetic code. The process is totally random, but there are still factors that cause some mutations to thrive while others don't. Some mutations can be beneficial, some harmful, and some don't make much of a difference either way. And there's also the question of the environmental circumstances, the predator-prey relationships, the way different organisms and populations are interconnected. All of those forces are acting on us humans, too. 
Inevitably, you know someone who contains a relatively recent change in their genetic makeup. Can you drink milk without getting sick? That's because one of your ancestors probably came from a community in northern Africa or Europe, where people started raising livestock and drinking milk thousands of years ago. Uh, we think lactose tolerance that persists into adulthood, that evolved maybe three or eight thousand years ago, and only around that time did people start to be able to tolerate lactose as adults. Those who were able to digest milk beyond childhood were more likely to survive. On the time scale of evolution, lactose tolerance is a relatively new adaptation, a simple example of how we're still evolving. Another example is wisdom teeth. We don't need them anymore, but our jaws are getting too small to contain them, which is why we pay thousands of dollars to have them removed. But they used to serve a function. Our ancestors had a really tough diet, you know, raw plant matter, raw meat, and they had to chew it and they didn't have toothpaste or anything, and so they would lose their molars, their molars would be worn away. And so the wisdom teeth would erupt late in life, sort of like how sharks have uh, teeth that, you know, new teeth that replace their old teeth. You know, today we cook our food, we cut it with knives, we blend it into smoothies. We really, we can keep our molars all the way into old age. We don't need the wisdom teeth anymore. Matan says that eventually, wisdom teeth, vestiges of our days as raw meat carnivores, could vanish entirely. Other changes can be a bit more unpredictable. Some of them are in the eye of the beholder. Blue eyes, you know, again, that's cosmetic, but you know, half a billion people on Earth today have blue eyes. But we think that only evolved maybe less than 10,000 years ago. Somewhere around the Black Sea, um, something happened. A person had eyes with no melanin or, or less melanin, the, the, the pigment that makes our, our eyes brown. Um, you know, this has obviously no natural selection benefits, but apparently gave a pretty strong sexual selection benefit. Blue eyes, lactose intolerance, wisdom teeth, these changes were all the results of random mutations. They were passed on largely because of lifestyle changes, like domesticating cows, cooking our food, and also just plain chance. None of these traits are that high stakes, but there is something else going on, something serious, even life or death. The most important evolutionary force acting on us today is disease. For the most part, we don't worry about predators like sharks, bears, or saber-toothed tigers anymore. Our real predators these days are viruses, bacteria, and killer fungi. And, according to Matan, disease is only going to become a more significant evolutionary factor as climate change shifts habitats for disease vectors. Climate change is, is helping the, the mosquitoes that vector malaria, um, and they vector a lot of other diseases as well. They happen to like uh, warmer temperatures, tropical temperatures. The malaria parasite is moving a bit northwards. It's moving, it's moving up into temperate regions of the world. Part of why disease is such a volatile evolutionary force is because it's so unpredictable. This is like a big idea in evolution that a lot of people don't get. There's no plan. There's no end goal. It's not working for the betterment of the species. Like mutations are random. So, so many opportunities for surprises. So, if more deadly diseases emerge. Who's to say what surprises, good or bad, might come? And you might be thinking, surely we'll develop new treatments to save us. But according to Matan, it's not that simple. As long as you have diseases like malaria that can live inside um, mosquitoes and apes, uh, we're, we're going to be at the mercy of evolution for that, unless we have you know, new some new technology like, say, uh, mosquito eradication, which that's a, that's a job for the entomologists. You know, we can literally drain swamps so mosquitoes don't have a, as many places to live. Um, and, you know, that's great for those with medicine, but what about those without? You know, 
they're at the mercy of their own immune system and whatever uh, resistances they can evolve. The environment can have a tremendous influence on evolution. For example, it's widely believed that drought and desertification led early hominids to leave the trees and walk upright on the ground. And now, in the Anthropocene, it's quite possible that the changing environment will impact our future evolutionary trajectory with disease as a driving force. Humans are shaping the environment, and the environment shapes evolution. So does this mean that we can control our own evolution in some way? Uh, within a thousand years, we'll have the technology, possibly the ethical framework, to start making designer babies, or at least the very least we can edit the genomes uh, to remove any fatal genetic disorder. We're, we're getting to that technology faster and faster than we thought. Obviously, this is only going to affect the rich uh, who have access to, to this. Um, but I still think we're going to be artificially selecting ourselves to some way. And this is going to have a much bigger role than natural selection in our history. We're going to be editing our evolution. So where will our march of progress take us next? Will the next species be Homo sapiens cyborgus? We really don't know. We never could have predicted blue eyes or lactose tolerance, so it's impossible to say what other traits will develop. And who knows, we might not even make it. Climate change or disease or even our own technologies could drive us to extinction. But assuming we do survive, we'll never be free from evolution. The question now is just how much can we shape our own destinies? That was student producer Dylan Anslow and Professor Matan Shalomi. When we think about evolution, we typically think about genes, mutations, chemistry. But there's another side to our development. We are a social species, and our behavior is driven by instincts whose origins remain mysterious. So in our next story, student producer Leah Mosier explores an instinct that we rarely consider. The impulse towards play. Here's Leah. In the late 1990s, a hunter-trapper by the name of Brian Ledoon was exploring an area around Hudson Bay, Canada, with 30 of his sled dogs. A photographer was tagging along with him, and Brian tethered his dogs to get ready for the photo shoot. But then, things took an unexpected turn. Out of nowhere, an enormous male polar bear came upon the group and headed straight towards the last sled dog. He looked ready to attack. But that's not exactly what happened. And what happened was that the sled dog went down into a play bow, wags her tail, and the polar bear, upon seeing this play signal, suddenly left the carnivorous mindset, stood up, took a look at the at this playful sled dog, and they began a really amazing uh, play ballet between the two of them, where they romped and jumped around, and uh, even on one in one occasion, the bear had the dog in its jaws, lifted it up, threw it up in up in the air. It landed on the bear. They tussled together, and they ended up in an embrace. This is Stuart Brown, 
He's an expert on play. He's been studying play for over three decades, and his work blends psychology, neuroscience, and animal studies. He often tells the story of the polar bear and sled dog in presentations because it highlights a biological instinct we don't usually think about. The instinct to play. But what exactly do we mean by play? Play is not easy to define. It's kind of like trying to define love in that it is an experiential process. I'd say it's something that's done for its own sake, that it is voluntary, that it is pleasurable, that it takes one out of the sense of time, uh, and that uh, very often it appears at the moment to be purposeless, and yet if you look at its uh, trajectory over the long haul, it appears to have a good deal in the way of purpose and benefit. In the animal kingdom, you find examples of play happening all the time. In Stuart's years of research, he's observed birds intentionally flying into dust storms just to ride the wind currents, buffaloes stepping onto frozen ponds just so they can skid across them. Play is hardwired into animal DNA. But when you move to the human world, unfortunately, the importance of play is oftentimes undervalued in society, especially as we grow up. Stewart says play is important far beyond childhood, and he has done extensive research examining the way it is baked into our biology. If you do uh, what I've done over the last many, many years, which is to take a lot of detailed play histories, you begin to sense that there is a kind of unique play personality that emerges uh, biologically. It, is, uh, it appears to be kind of hardwired and part of the essential design of being human. Stewart has developed a framework for organizing these play personalities, which are sort of like archetypes that define your connection to play throughout your life. You could be a storyteller or a collector or a joker or an explorer. And Stuart says that oftentimes, a single person might have several different play personalities. However, our culture can suppress those tendencies, starting from childhood. Our culture likes purpose, likes accomplishment, likes to see kids ready for, uh, you know, for reading and writing by the time they're in kindergarten. And oftentimes, because of that, there is a, a subtle or very overt uh, pressure on the child to perform for the adult and to perform uh, and accomplish things that may not come spontaneously from their play nature. According to Stuart, if you learn to follow your play personality over the course of your life, it can lead to an incredible sense of fulfillment. Back in 1992, Stuart helped produce a series for the BBC called Soul of the Universe. In it, he interviewed a number of Nobel laureates. And I found that in taking the play history of many of these individuals, they were in total alliance with their play nature. Now, they may have been explorers, they may have been collectors, you know, they, they may have been storytellers to some degree, but they nonetheless were able to take this deep intrinsic motivation that's play-based, keep with it, find it, find a way to make a career out of it, and then excel by virtue, I guess, of their innate abilities and opportunities to then excel to the point where they received a Nobel Prize. Play and success 
are so often viewed as polar opposites in Western culture. Playing has a connotation of goofing off, not taking things seriously. On the other hand, we're told being successful requires hard work, put on a serious face, focus on the task at hand, and tackle the world. But these interviews Stuart conducted demonstrate that successful Nobel laureates fill their everyday lives with play. So on one end of the spectrum, we have people who have developed a healthy sense of play. But what happens on the other end of the spectrum when that sense of play is lacking? Stuart worked as a clinical psychologist for many years and gained insight to what happens when humans are deprived of play to an extreme. And in fact, other researchers have also studied this in the laboratory. If you interrupt play in animals, and you can do this, uh, highly playful social mammals, stop their play in a laboratory setting, and then see what goes on in the brain, what you find is that there, that there are prefrontal cortical genes waiting to be activated that don't get activated. And so the socialization capability and a lot of the other uh, outcomes of healthy play don't happen in these animals where their play has been disrupted. In other words, play is a form of communication. It's one of the ways we learn to socialize. I started teaching outdoor education when I was a junior in college. I was told that to be a great teacher, I needed to approach the outdoors with a beginner's mind. Get on the ground with the kids, pretend to be a mountain lion, a red-tailed hawk, or a California newt. I needed to be curious and exploratory. I saw the way kids question everything around them, the curiosity lighting up in their eyes. And that's part of what brought me to this story, to understand on a deep level how play connects us to others and to our surroundings, including the natural environment. So when I interviewed Stuart, I asked him if he sees a connection between play and environmental change. I think when you observe a life that is play-saturated, you find that there is a respect for your body, for nature, and I think the very thing we're talking about, the desire to have a sustainable environment and to not exploit the environment for some hedonistic uh, excess, occurs as a part of being play-saturated. You're, you're, you, don't, you don't have a hunger to uh, exceed uh, what you need. I think it's part of why it's still there from an evolutionary standpoint. It's, it's helped us survive as hunter-gatherers and as a species. So, you know, it's not unimportant. Our instinct towards play has the capacity to connect us to the world, to others, and to live a fulfilled life. But so often it is suppressed or viewed as a fleeting part of childhood experience. So how exactly can we bring that playful nature back bring that joy into our lives, and reconnect with our play personality. Find images that are joyous, that whether it's a, you know, a trip to Yosemite or a birthday party or the first bicycle or, or the closest friend you've ever had, but something that is so true to you that brings you joy, and then link that joyfulness to as many places and and opportunities in your current life as possible. Because I think finding and being at one with your play nature, it's part of being fully human. That was student producer Leah Mosier. 
For more information about Stuart Brown and his work, check out his National Institute for Play. We'll link to it in the show notes and on our website. Our show is produced by Mike Osborne, Leslie Chang, Jackson Roach, and me, Miles Traer. Special thanks also to Tom Hayden and Isha Salian. Our project is supported by Worldview Stanford and Stanford Earth. You can learn more about the podcast online at genanthro.com. That's G-E-N-A-N-T-H-R-O.com. We're also on Facebook and on Twitter at GenAnthropocene. If you like what we do, right now the best way you can support us is to leave a review or rating on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll be back on Thursday with a new episode.